Hey everybody, it's Eugene Lee Show here and welcome to Forensics Talks. This is episode 66 and today my guest is Tiffany Roy. Now Tiffany is a forensic DNA scientist and she first caught my eye by posting trial transcripts online and she was being really critical about experts and what they say and how they say it. So in this interview today we're going to be discussing things like testimony, challenges in forensic science and also bias in forensic science and how it relates to DNA cases. So we're going to get right to it and I hope you enjoy our interview. Thank you. So, hey, Tiffany, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, I want to ask you first. Well, let me let me say this. So we sort of met online because of all the posts and everything else. And so that's part of the reason why you're here. Uh, you've made some really interesting comments online and you raise a lot of issues, you know, with respect to uh, DNA and bias and testimony. So um, through the magic of the Internet, we've we've sort of come together here. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, um, I- but it's funny. I went to a conference this week and um, the UK um, forensic science regulator, Jillian Tully, was giving the keynote speech and she used one of my LinkedIn posts in her presentation. <laughs> and I almost died. But, you know, it is, you know, a, a way that a lot of people have connected, especially over the pandemic. So, OK, well, I hope you don't mind because I have several of your posts here today. So <laughs> we're bringing them. We're bringing it all up. I mean, it's online. People can see it. But you, you raised some really good points. So I think that's important. But. Let's start with you. And I want to ask you about sort of, you know, before you were, uh, you know, uh, going to school for, you know, forensics, biology and all that other stuff. Were you always the the science geek kid or, or were you something different? No, I mean, I, I think I was a lot like a lot of people that go into college and you don't really know what you want to do. I knew what my strengths were. So I guess I let the my strengths lead me. I always excelled in biology. And so that's why I pursued that in my undergraduate, but I didn't even know what, you know, right up until maybe the, my junior year, senior year of college, what I wanted to do with it. So I decided on forensics from watching TV shows. Uh-huh. Um, the TV show that drew me to that field was called forensic files. It was on a court TV channel and you know, I would sit around with my uh, college sorority sisters and watch that, you know, for hours and hours. And then I just decided that was what I wanted to do. And and then I just went from there and, and tried to make that a reality. So that that was what started it all. It was a TV program. <laughs> so, I mean, you went to I mean, you went to university to study like biology and, and, and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. uh, but then an interesting thing that I caught, I, I, I didn't hear it come up before, but uh, you studied law as well. Yes. And so that was secondary. So I, I got my degree in biology and then I pursued um, a position with the crime lab and until I got a position with the crime lab. Um, and then once I got into the lab and realized what the day to day work was going to be like, um, I, I found lab work to be very stressful In forensic DNA. It's so serious. And we're working with such sensitive information, sensitive technologies. That's really easy to make mistakes. <clears throat> and so I found that super duper stressful. And shortly after I began working in the crime lab, I started to pursue a law degree at night. And I thought, oh, maybe I can be a prosecutor. You know, now I have all this knowledge and it could be helpful to bridge sort of the gap between the law and the science. And so I I did that at night while I worked for the Massachusetts State Police in the day. Okay, but you didn't. uh, So afterwards, once you finally got it, I mean, did you did you pursue anything in that in that career in that area? Or because you you obviously you're back to, you know, doing 
forensic stuff, but um, yeah. how did that work out? So sometimes the universe just kind of pushes you where you're supposed to go. <clears throat> so I graduated in 2010 and we had a really serious economic downturn around 2008. So in 2010, when I left government employment, we were still being furloughed. Um, and I had applied with um, my local prosecutor's office, um, the Middlesex County DA here in Massachusetts. And they had my application, but they weren't hiring. So, you know, it was going to be some time before they did that. And my law school loans were going to start to come due. And so I started to explore other options. And one of those other options was to continue in forensic DNA, you know, at, at a laboratory that was going to pay me more money. So that's yeah. how I ended up in Florida. And that's how I ended up at DNA Labs International. Okay. Well, let's talk about forensic DNA then. So um, I've seen, I've seen some of your presentations and I, you know, just different things with respect to developments in DNA and stuff. Um, and this may take you a while to answer, but the, if we go back like whatever, 15 years or something like that and talk about how, what was, what was uh, DNA like then versus now uh, and how it's changed over the years? Yeah, so it's been a really significant progression so from the science perspective and from our technology's perspective. When we first started, we needed um, body fluids. So we were testing samples from sexual assaults that had semen and maybe vaginal cells mixed or blood source. We didn't really test samples for, for skin cells um, at that time, really. So um, we needed really high quantity and high quality DNA in order to get a DNA profile when we first started. And that progressed to where we are today, where the technology is a lot more sensitive. We can get a lot more information with a lot less genetic information. And it's a few things have happened, you know, from that we realized that we needed a whole new set of operating rules and we needed to try to standardize things a lot more tightly. Um, and, we also realized that we needed maybe a little bit more help for consistency across the board. Um, we brought on new technologies. We started using different language. And so we realize now that we're getting information and we have to consider things like what does this DNA, the presence or absence of this DNA, how does that play into the crime that's being investigated um, and, and whether or not that's even related to the crime, you know, because DNA we now know can transfer and we're working with such small quantities. Now we have to really consider those things. So there've been a lot of changes and a lot of developments and a lot of demands on the field, on these bench working analysts here. And I think that some of the things that I'm really concerned about in testimony are related to that. I see. And did the, did the 2009 NAS report have an impact at all on DNA? I mean, it did on so many other areas, but I'm just wondering if that, you know, if DNA just kind of cruised through because they, they kind of got the, you know, the, the thumbs up on, in the report. But yeah. was there any effect from that? Um, I think that it really did. And I don't know if it was a good effect. Right. It was a it was a gold star and a stamp of approval, really, that we had at least some research science that laid the bedrock for this field. Um, but they didn't no one was really looking at consistency across the field. Um, the people at NIST started to do that um, in 2005. They really raised the first red flag that there wasn't a whole lot of consistency in application. And no one was really looking to see, okay, these methods, you know, you did the research and you laid the foundation and the foundation is good. The research is good and it's supported. But now is it being applied appropriately by the labs who are using it? And then I think that was a big failure of, of the NAS report to really consider that, um, you know, there are some aspects of forensic DNA and some DNA profiles that are very clear cut 
when we have a single source blood stain. That's very specific information. It's very clear information. But now when we're swabbing, you know, a car door handle or any door handle um, or things from public places and hotel rooms and things, the clarity is not the same. And it becomes a lot more like the pattern matching disciplines. And there's a lot less consistency and there's a lot less, um, you know, there's more concern for correct application um, on the bench level. So, so it, um, and, and that's, that's a great point because I, that's something that I've sort of heard over the years is that, you know, it's, it's clear cut when it's clear cut, but then when there's all kinds of mixtures, all kinds of people, um, you know, then it becomes much more difficult to interpret. And I think that's what you're referring to is like, uh, it becomes problematic. Um, what about the, um, I had, I think I had seen something from, I believe his name is Dr. Is it Dan Crane? Dan Crane, yeah, from Yeah, Dan Crane. So, and he 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 was showing something about like even just running the same sample and some of the problems that can come up, like reading the electropharogram, like things drop out, things pop in. Like, what are some of the issues that can happen uh, just through you know even repeated testing? Oh, where if we're talking even within the same laboratory and and we have a low level sample like that, um, you can run it three times and get different information each time slightly, or, I mean, you would expect to get different information. So we have the processes we use are based on the amounts of DNA. And you, I want you to think about it like, um, you know, a, a bowl of cereal that has fruit loops of different colors. And we're only able to scoop and get, you know, one or two colors each time, even though, you know, you have some green fruit loops in there, you might not get a green fruit loop, you know, if you, mm-hmm you know, on your scoop, if you have very limited fruit loops to start with. Right. So I think, you know, our systems are based on that where we need a a good, strong, solid representative sampling to get representative sample. And if we don't have that to start, we're going to get sometimes sampling that's, that's uneven. And so you can miss, you'd be missing information. You can get um, inconsistent information and it makes it really hard to interpret. It's very difficult. So even if you run it at the same lab, three times you could get different information. And so okay. that's one of the things that complicates um, the interpretation process. You, you talked about, um, you know, when, when the sample was, you know, from blood or it's very clear cut or whatever before, but what about um, now when, you know, using skin cells and things like that, like when, you might, when I hear the term amplification, like on a, you know, if I, if I consider something like a radio, you know, when you amplify a signal, you also amplify noise. So do you have the same kinds of issues with, with DNA? Yes, we absolutely do. And then telling the difference. So not only do we find that the information, you know, can vary, it is not always repeatable because we're not getting good sampling at, at low levels. Then you also have to try to decide between what is true DNA and what is noise. Um, we also have artifacts that we know um, is a byproduct of our testing, and, and it's difficult oftentimes when we get these kinds of difficult samples to tell what is artifact, um, you know, and what is true DNA. So it gets really, really complex. And then doing that in any consistent way within labs and then across labs is, is a daunting challenge that we are still trying to deal with today. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to st- statistics, um, I heard you say once that there, uh, or there have been changes in the way that um, statistics are reported with DNA. So how was it done before and what kinds of things are being done today? This is such a sticky question. So <laughs> before we used to do it, I would call it frequent math where we would see 
how common or rare the profile is in the population. What's the chance of a randomly selected unrelated person just having this jumble of traits? Um, you know, so a scientist would say it's, you know, there's a, there's a one in 10,000 chance or there's a one in 2 million chance, something like that. Yes. We would okay. weight it based on, you know, the traits that we see and say, how, you know, we have a, a general idea of how common or rare those are in the population. When I think about this, I think about the compounding of information. So when you think about a physical description, even though we don't get any physical information about, you know, eye color, hair color, anything like that from the testing that we do routinely, mm-hmm. that's how we're using it. We're using it, you know, over the length of the profile and the clarity of the information. So if you get really good, clear information from an eyewitness about hair color, eye color, height, weight, you know, maybe a unique marking or, or a tattoo, face tattoo, Um, You know, that's really good, clear information that can be used to exclude a lot of people. But if you have a jumble of information that's really unclear, you know, it might be the, the, you know, equivalent of a physical description of six foot tall white male. You know, that's going to it's going to exclude some people, but not all people. So this stuff, I think the frequentist idea, you know, just given the general frequency of the information from the DNA profile that made sense to people. And we're doing it a bit differently now. The likelihood ratio is still based on the, the frequencies of the, the allelic information, but we're giving the likelihood of seeing the evidence profile if um, a certain person is a contributor versus a randomly selected unrelated person. Okay. Um, and so this is probabilistic. This is be- it's Bayesian, right? So we had frequentist math and now we have Bayesian math. And Bayesian math is always about owing to the possibility that there is still a small chance that it could be a random person. We're never ruling that out. We're never identifying the source. We're really not doing that anymore. And we're not seeing, we're not using those finite words because we haven't tested everybody. People are born every day and people die every day. And we want to just make sure we're being scientific and balanced. And so this new language and the new way of thinking of things is, is a little bit different and a little more abstract for lay people. And even for the bench bench level scientists, I don't think, there are many of them that really love it and embrace it the, the way they need to. You said something, and I, ho- I hope you can clarify this for me, because, again, it's not uh, entirely clear to me because it's not my area. But you, you mentioned, for example, we're not looking at things like hair color, eye color, uh, whatever, skin color, whatever it might be. So then the the locations or the, the types of things that are being checked in the DNA, these, these I don't know if you call them alleles or, or whatever, yeah. what, are, what, are, what, what do they represent? Do they represent anything in particular or... Um, it's a repeat unit of DNA. So it's code and it repeats a variable number of times at those locations. And so um, each person has a different combination of repeats. They get one set of repeats from mom and one set of repeats from dad. And I want you to think about it as a piece of DNA that varies by size. So one piece is repeat 18 and one piece is repeat 19. So you're an 18, 19 combination. And it's, and it's related to the length of the DNA and the length is broken down by the, the code that repeats. So is it a lot, is there a, and again, because I don't understand this, is there a logical reason why those specific areas were chosen versus some other area? Yep. They were studied and they were selected because they're variable. They're highly variable. They're accessible to the commercial um, primers and kits that we use to make the copies. So based on where they are located on the DNA strand and how, how easily they can be copied. Um, so there were scientific reasons why they picked the certain locations, but just in general, the idea is we want the ones that are variable that, you know, we compound them and we want them to make the information more and more unique, um, you know, so that we can exclude more people, essentially. 
All right. Okay. I'm going to bring up one of your posts here. Um, and this one was, uh, well, since we're talking about stats and stuff, but you talk about the likelihood ratio and it's, a, I guess this is a little excerpt from a transcript is what it looks like. Yeah. So uh, I'll just read it uh, for people that are going to be listening to this on podcast. But the question is, uh, so how would you define a likelihood ratio? A likelihood ratio is simply a comparison of two opposing opinions. Okay. Meaning, for example, likelihood of a particular person versus likelihood of any other person. The answer is correct. So what, what is the meaning here for you? So it's always the likelihood of the DNA profile and the focus is always on the evidence and it's not on the propositions. And so this is an example of what we would call the transpose conditional. So there, even when I started, when I began, I think thinking about the likelihood ratio, my focus was on the scenarios and not the evidence, but it's really the likelihood of the evidence given the propositions and the propositions can change. And, the inf- and, you know, the likelihood ratio will change um, when those propositions change and when the information changes. So it's really highly dependent on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important just to keep the focus on the evidence. Okay. There was another one, actually, uh, that I want to bring up here as well. Let me just bring this up. I think it's this one here. Yeah. So this one here, the question is, uh, is the likelihood ratio a measurement? Yes. And what kind of measurement is it? It's a measurement of two opposing conclusions. Okay, have you ever heard of a term called prosecutor's fallacy? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And what is that to you? That's just stating the likelihood in a, it sounds like it's correct, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, so part of the, and I really like the work being done at NIST um, in the foundation review. Um, They did a NIST foundation review on forensic DNA interpretation, and they really, this was kind of filling the gap, I think, that existed from the NAS where it was not just, okay, is the bedrock okay? Is the method foundation there? Is it being applied appropriately out in the field? And do people understand it? Um, and so part and part of their, you know, in their uh, work, they make sure to tell you what the likelihood ratio is and what the likelihood ratio is not. And it's not a measurement. Um, and it's and that's because it's so heavily dependent on the information, you know, as your propositions change and the questions are changing, your likelihood ratio is going to change. So it's not just a measurement. You know, you're at, you're trying to give weight or value to the evidence given the proposition. And so uh, he made sure to put in there. Um, I say when I say he am meaning John Butler, but all of the people who wrote that, you know, there are many authors on that Melissa Taylor and, and a lot of other um, Sheila Willis and some great people that did that. But Part of this, too, is that they um, I think that many analysts are not reading in a critical way that they that they should be, you know, as experts in the field. They should know that it was described in this document. and It was clearly stated it wasn't a measurement. Mm -hmm. And then also I like to see if they can allocate what the prosecutor's fallacy is and why that's wrong. They know that it's wrong, but if you don't understand what it is and, and be able to describe it, the chances that you're going to be doing it as a analyst did in this testimony. Um, Cause the first cutting, the one you showed me was from the same transcript as okay. the quote. Um, you know, the, the chances that you're going to make that mistake because you don't fully, you know, it's wrong, but you don't know what it is deeply, then you could be making that mistake. So, so do you think that forensic, DNA has maybe an issue or maybe a little bit of a problem with communication, like of how they report and stuff. And I'm thinking specifically about things like jurors and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that for me right now, a real serious focus, once I started to do this kind of work and look critically at what's being said in the courtroom, 
I mean, in the past, when we first recognized that there were problems with microscopic hair analysis, and I know you had him, Chris Fabrican, on your on your podcast, and we really realized that you know, around 2010. And then after we recognized that there were some misstatements, overstatements of the evidence and testimony, there were some people that proposed that we do a significant testimony review across all disciplines. And they had brought a lot of smart people into the room and discussed how this would be executed, what what they would do, you know, how, how they would measure it. And that just never happened. And sometimes this stuff happens because of who's in office, you know, who's driving that information, you know, the president and, and, how high a priority they put on that. And then when that person leaves office, these kinds of things are just abandoned because they're left to the government. Mm-hmm. And so they're subject to political sway like that. But for me, once I started to look at what was being said in court, you know, I really truly realized that we have to think long and hard about who's teaching these scientists, how to communicate science evidence. And, um, you know, we have to oversee it in a way that's really meaningful. We put a lot of emphasis on, the technical documents and our reports and having those reviewed and, and administratively reviewed and making sure those are correct. But in court, which is the final end user of this information, those reports and all your notes, those don't go into evidence most often. It's the words, it's your description of those things to the jury on the witness stand. And so if that's flawed, all the other methods that we have employed to make sure things have been correct are for nothing. And yeah. so, you know, I think we need to make much more effort in teaching these scientists how to communicate science evidence on the witness stand. Yeah, there was another post here that I, w- I was going to bring up, but it had to do with, uh, you know, have you ever made a mistake? And I'd say, no, I haven't. I'm perfect. I've never have. Right. Um, so and this was such a hard one. I try to when I when I prepare lawyers to uh, cross examine or to give in. I have deposition in the state of Florida, which is like a something that's usually offered in civil cases, but not very commonly offered in criminal cases. But I always ask this question just to gauge how defensive the scientists are going to be about error. And human people make mistakes. I've made mistakes. I answer for my mistakes. As long as they're honest mistakes, you're going to have no problem. But we should be expecting these analysts to be forthcoming about them. And I think in as a field, we need to try to normalize error, right? We don't want these lawyers to think we're perfect. You know, no one should be, no one should be asking them to be perfect and they should be ready to say, Hey, the the right answer to that question is, you know, have you ever made a mistake? Yes. I'm a human person. I've made mistakes. (laughs) So that's it. That's all you have to say. And that's what I like to see. That's the kind of acknowledgement that you want to see from somebody doing this work and not sometimes I see, well, what's a mistake? And can you define what's a mistake? Is it still a mistake if we catch it before it goes out the door? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not. Yeah, better off just say, yes, you make mistakes, have done, said, it's it's a closed door, yeah. Right. I remember once uh, I was uh, uh, testifying and the, uh, I can't remember if it was defense prosecution, but they asked, you know, do, do you know what bias is, right? And so I'm like, oh, here we go. Maybe they're going to start implying that, you know, I'm, I'm, I somehow biased my work or whatever, but I responded honestly. And I just said, yes, I do. And I know that it's a factor and that it, it can influence people. And there are people, you know, uh, uh, like Dr. Etiel Dror and others that are working in this area and they're trying to raise the visibility. Da, da, da. And once I mentioned, threw out a few names and said, yeah, it's there. I, I know it's a real thing, whatever. Then the, the question just went away. So maybe it's yeah. a, a case of, yeah, just bringing it open and that's it. And just being so 
you just being accepting of it and being aware of it. And I think there are some people and I still see some discussions, heated discussions online. And I've had discussions with colleagues in private that don't want to put that online, but they don't really believe, you know, they don't really believe that they're subject to bias. And, um, you know, one of the things that our OSAC has just put out for DNA, they put out this amazing process map. Uh, Melissa Taylor at NIST really loves process mapping. And it, it is amazing to see how many decisions have to be made at different stages of the process and human decision-making, you know, as a human person, it, even on, you know, things that get are a toss up. Sometimes you have no idea why your mind goes in one direction and someone else's mind might go in a completely different direction. Right. So, you know, it's just something to be aware of. We're never going to remove human bias, but we're trying to find ways to isolate where you could be susceptible to it and just be cognizant of it, you know? I want to ask you about this uh, article here that was online. It's on psychology today, you know, rethinking the order in law and order. And this uh, looks like uh, there there was this was authored by a couple of people, including yourself. Um, But uh, what can you tell me about this particular article? Um, So this was mainly authored by my colleague, Jeff Kakaka. And he, he, you know, these are people who are in, um, you know, psychology. They, they have PhDs in this and they study it and they understand it. My colleague Adele Quigley McBride at Duke um, and Brandon Garrett, and they really just want people to think, and I, and I have seen this in my own thought processes and in my discussions with my colleagues, just being, you know, intentional with when you're exposed to what information and just documenting what information you've been exposed to. Because even though what I find is like one piece of information, Adele and I ran through an exercise one day where there was some piece of information that um, was case information, which Adele thought was really important for just knowing about the case. And I think maybe it was the, the age of the individual involved. And sometimes she didn't think it was like highly biasing, but I, I did. And I was like, well, if this is an age and it's a very low number, if it's a child or if it's a very old person that's been assaulted, that can certainly be biasing information, even though, you know, that's going to be included in the case information, oftentimes in your sexual assault examination forms. And um, so even thinking about information, the way we think, you know, she didn't feel it was biased or biasing. And I thought that might bias someone. So just being transparent and documenting what you know and when you know it, whether or not you think it's biasing or not, or had had any influence on your interpretation. Like that's what I find. A lot of people don't think it really impacted and that's fine, but somebody else might look at it and say, Oh yeah, man, then we probably shouldn't have said that at that, at that time. Or that might've been the reason why they felt they needed to go in this direction instead of another direction. And um, it's just something that we can discuss and debate and just be transparent about. Yeah, I've seen examples where, for example, like the analyst is, you know, speaking with the investigators or whatever. And then, you know, they'll say, you know, we've got this suspect and, you know, he's whatever, you know, male. So, you know, it's age, this, that, whatever. And then they have all this sort of uh, circumstantial stuff. And then, you know, they realize that the only thing that could bring charges is the DNA. Right. So then it's like that's pressure, right? That That's a lot of influence. Yeah. And sometimes they say that sometimes they say, we need to, we, we need this guy's DNA on this item. You know, they flat out say it and you'll see it in there and you're like, Oh no, no. <laughs> and you, you hope that it didn't have any impact. And even if the analyst said it ha- didn't have any impact, how do you know? I mean, I have no idea what kind of things clicked in that person's mind. And I just think it's about being more aware 
of what information you're getting and at what stage um, so that we can look into these things a little bit more closely. But yeah, there's certainly the communications are, you know, an area where we get this a lot. Well, that might lead me in right into this uh, paper, which is, uh, you know, there's uh, Adele Quigley McBride, there's Dr. Etiel Drawer, there's yourself, there's a couple of other people there, and linear sequential unmasking expanded. Now, I believe at one time it was linear sequential unmasking, and then this there was, then it got the expanded, I think, uh, appended to it. Um, but what can you tell us about this particular paper? So this expanded on uh, ATL and Jeff came out with a paper earlier. Um, I want to say just a couple months before in 2021, where they sort of expanded their LSUE, I mean, the LSU fr- framework out and so that we could use it in other disciplines and maybe other sciences. But it was really abstract to me and Adele when we were trying to think about how we would apply it to our work. And right now we're doing a lot of work for NIST um, on our human factors and forensic DNA working group. So we just were really kind of unclear about the concepts and how they would be implemented by, you know, a case working lab. And we really wanted examples. And so she and I worked together. She created, you know, this, this amazing worksheet where we kind of we kind of give a value and assignment, you know, to each piece of information. How critical is it to our task? You know, what is the biasing potential? Um, and really think critically about the information that's been, you know, transmitted and try to weave that into your case file um, and just your normal documentation process. So if you get an email and it says something in there, like, we really need to get this guy, you know, is that really important for your task? No, that has low task value and it has really high biasing power. Um, and so this might bring to light, I think, to more practitioners just how often that sometimes happens um, and it, it will at least be sort of a framework for how you can implement these concepts about, you know, shielding your analysts or limiting the information that they're getting to just the information that's really fundamental for what they're about to do, the analyses they're going to perform, and to try to make other people aware, you know, whether it's the law, impar- uh, uh, law enforcement partners or the legal partners, um, you know, when something comes in, you have a chance to review all that stuff later and you say, hey, Maybe we have a talk with them and we show them this worksheet and why we shouldn't be communicating certain types of information and how that can impact the case file. So, um, you know, it's really just from a practitioner standpoint. And what I did was we took a case file and I read to her, you know, the communications that were in a real case file. And then we practiced categorizing them and describing them. Um, and so just to see how it would be used practically. There's uh, I, I just noticed here, but for this is freely available, right? Like these worksheets and such, because it I, I looks like they're there. But can you, can you explain a little bit about the, the different worksheets? There's uh, like you had an example. There's some other things here. Yeah. And so for me, all of this stuff is open source. We tried to put and I think there's a bigger push for everybody in forensics to try to get all this stuff together, put it out there, give the community tools, give them the data help them with examples and try to show them how to implement this stuff, make it as easy on them as possible because it is kind of overwhelming. And the first time we read that paper, we were overwhelmed. So we really wanted to give an example of how this would work. And my view, my vision for it really is alongside the communications. The laboratory is documenting their communications that they get um, and the police reports they receive and when they're going to send out copies of the file and they're doing this stuff anyway. So if maybe they just think about the information at the time that they're going to log it in there and, you know, we can, it doesn't take a whole lot of extra time or effort to do it, 
but at least it's a step toward more transparency and maybe more consideration toward what information you had and at what at what stage. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. So you talked about like privacy and then uh, transparency. And I was just curious because there's um, there are different tools that are used um, in DNA. So I, I think there's one called Euroformix, which is like open source is totally free. Then there's, uh, is it STR mix or star mix? Mm-hmm. And then, um, there's another one, I believe it's called, is it true Yes. And that one, that one is not as open, right? So they're, they're all very different. Europe for me just seems like they fund forensic science in a different way than we fund it here. So Europe, the Euroformix uh, program is an open source probabilistic genotyping tool software program, and it was created on grant. Um, and the primary investigator was Dr. Peter Gill, and they helped to create this tool. And they they let anyone in the U- anyone in the world can use it um, and implement it. There are concerns about that, right? Because I'd be worried about what kinds of training, you know, they would need to seek out the training and make sure they were using it correctly and make sure they had validated it correctly. Um, when the tool is just open for you to download, anyone can use it even from, you know, your own garage without any qualification, which is kind of scary and can, it can be misused. So you have to be very careful in your court cases. But StarMix is a commercial software that was developed by the scientists at Environmental Science and Research in New Zealand. Um, and it is fully continuous probabilistic genotyping tool. It's slightly different than Neuroformix. It uses different math. Um, but they've done some great cross comparison studies about how StarMix performs um, versus how Euroformix performs. So it's not as open uh, to everybody. They will release information about source code and some other information um, if if they're required to by the courts, and they'll have somebody come in and you can sign a non disclosure and you know examine that stuff. So they try to work. You know, they owe a lot more to the the nature of the justice system and the transparency that that requires. And then there's Trulio, which is a commercial software that that was created by a private company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called Cybergenetics. Mm -hmm. And they don't disclose very much about what their program is doing. Um, But essentially, it's another um, probabilistic, fully continuous probabilistic genotyping model. And there are benefits to using that tool as well. Um, All of these different algorithms, you know, will get different results. And so... I think it's always good to interrogate a profile and see what different algorithms are doing um, with the data and how different those results can be. That can sometimes be very informative. But yeah, they, they really don't, they protect their intellectual property at cybergenetics very closely. They don't want to disclose what it's doing. Um, and so there's a lot of ongoing dispute about that. So it's, Yeah, I don't know if uh, Chris Fabricant brought that up. I, he mentioned a case, for example, where there was a lot of uh, discussion or not discussion, but I think there was an attempt made to like bring out some of the math or some of the, the, the algorithms behind. So was, was that, or do you know if, have people been fighting to get access to this? Yeah. So I know they have, and they've been granted access at least in New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, but what happens with, um, cyber genetics, um, if they're commanded to disclose that stuff, they'll just retract the information. They won't, they won't offer the evidence. They won't sponsor the evidence, I think. So, Oh, really? Yeah, they really don't want to disclose their intellectual property. And, you know, that could be there's a lot of reasons why that might be. But they know their tool better than anyone else. Um, and I think that's the way they want to keep that. So, you know, there there are some legal battles. There are a lot of really bright lawyers that are, have taken that up. That's a big thing that Dan Crane and Nathan Adams do. 
Um, they look closely at, you know, Nathan does the code, the computer code, and I don't, that's not my area of expertise. So that's not necessarily where my concerns are focused, but there's a lot of smart people working on that area. But does the company uh, provide assistance and support when you need to know something or just sometimes it's like, nope, we're not going there and. Um, they have some videos online and they provide trainings for laboratories who have purchased the software, but I, so I can't really speak to it cause I don't own the software. All I, I have interacted with them. I have sent cases there or, or recommended that attorneys send cases to cyber genetics, but then that's their people using their own computer systems. Um, and so, and, and I don't really make requests for the source code. That's not, I can't look at source code. I wouldn't know if the source code told me to go jump off a bridge. So, you know, it, other people are fighting that battle, um, you know, and I'm just looking at it from more of the biological standpoint. But, and it, but I do think, like I said, NIST, the field in general, we're all trying to raise the level of transparency for everybody. And so I really don't see a defensible argument with, I, I don't want to share this information. If you, if you rightfully engage yourself in a system that's this serious, then you should be ready and fully transparent. You should expect right. that. Uh, let me ask you about this one. Um, this is an article, just communications when the question is not who, but how. And uh, this particular one, you know, is talking about, you know, activity level stuff and all this other thing. Um, I mean, DNA will respond to who is it, right? So, and, but are there cases where people are, saying, no, it got there like this and it got there like that. I mean, do, do the scientists often report that as well? Oh, what the biggest problem is, is that scientists are not reporting that, especially not here in the United States. Um, we deal strictly with the question of who could be a contributor, who could, who could be consistent with this evidence. Um, we do not address how the DNA got to be there, but there is a recognition, I think, by people, many in the field, that this is happening on the witness stand. People are making these kinds of assessments based on how the DNA profiles look or what the measured amounts of DNA are. Um, and, you know, answering hypothetical questions from lawyers on the witness stand, which the responses are always just like, yes, it's possible. And is that really helpful to anyone that all these things are possible? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of misstatement, I think, that's happening. And so there's a push now to try to standardize that. I think that what we need to do here in the United States is just make clear we're not operating on any other level. We're operating on the WHO level. We're staying on the WHO level. Those are the questions that you can answer. And that's where you're on good scientific ground. And, you know, someday in the future, we may have a bedrock to be able to say, you know, how. And, and there are some labs in the, some parts of the world that are doing work to establish you know, when we can do that and how we would do that. And there are some laboratories doing some of that analysis now on some profiles, but we're still a long way away from it here in the States. And I think even globally on, on many different types of samples, we're working with such complex samples that this kind of thing may not be possible for every sample given the complexity. So, yeah, I've seen some studies that try to uh, look at, you know, transfer and, and, you know, how it got like there. But I mean, is there a lot of, is there a lot of work being done in that area now or not so much? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of papers now, and still we need more. Every time someone writes a paper and they have an, you know, a research design, and then they think, oh, you know, somebody should do that. Somebody should explore this aspect of it, and they'll put that at the bottom of their paper, and it's going on and on. And I was just at a talk where 
um, the people from Victoria Police in Australia, they have a dedicated research scientist there who's doing a great deal of the, the transfer work. His name is Roland Van Orschet. And he's doing um, some awesome studies where they're testing household pets to see what they, how they can be transfer vectors on their paws and on their fur. <laughs> and he's got these pictures of these dogs and these cats. And I'm like, what? <laughs> happy, happy, yeah. You know? Happy pets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all different aspects of human life, you know, it would, I think it's going to be impossible for us to think of all the different scenarios, but there are people really working hard to try to understand whether we can get there, you know, whether we can say things and okay. statements. Um, there was a, I'm going to bring this up here, but I'd like to know if you can comment on this because obviously, you know, DNA still, you know, has some contentious cases or things that happen. And there was one here, uh, this uh, Harris County case is reexamined after DNA analysts accused of false testimony in decade old case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a I had a quick look at that, and I think you posted something on it as well. But what can you tell me about what the analyst was like? What was false about the um, the the analyst's testimony? Um, it was really this was what is being alleged in this instance is sort of a lie of omission. So this analyst in particular would make statements, and they move from one laboratory to another laboratory, and I I. I'm thinking that part of this issue was that I felt like maybe the analyst was trying to say that they didn't have access to the case file from the previous laboratory, but they would testify only from their report. And that was the, his stated, you know, way he did things. I'm going to give testimony only from the report. You know, I don't have, and in some cases he didn't have access to the case file or didn't have it up on the witness stand with him. Um, One particular case the prosecutor asked a question about the condition of the evidence. And if there was a problem with the condition of the evidence, you know, would that be noted in his notes? And he said, yes, those would be noted in my notes, but that he didn't have the notes and he didn't review the notes before the testimony. And there was a note in the case file that was pretty significant about how the evidence was received. It was received, Mm -hmm. you know, to be, I think refrigerated or frozen and it was not. And then when it was finally opened at the time it was processed, there was water and thawed out ice packs in in the bottom, stinky water. And so the envelopes that the swabs were in and the, the samples were in were saturated with this moldy, stinky water. Um, I'm not sure at what point this came to light for the courts, but, you know, the fact that he almost chose not to look back and chose not to review those things that might be extremely important to, you know, a defendant, a criminal defendant, um, you know, I think that Houston Forensic Science Center took that really seriously. You, you just can't make those decisions. Like, I'm not going to testify, but from my notes, I'm going to testify only from what's contained in my report. And that's fine if you're going to have a really long report that's certainly going to mention that the evidence was retrieved from stinky, moldy mm-hmm. water before you tested it, you know. So, that you, yeah, it was like a lie of omission. But they're talking about 400 cases now. So was this something that he, this person kept doing over and over? They well, would, you know, they say, well, I just want to talk about my report. Forget about it, everything else. Yeah, that did happen in a number of cases. I'm just, I'm going to go from the report. But I think the court found that they felt like it was an intentional um, thing that he didn't go back to his notes and didn't want to go to the notes. And of course the notes are where gonna, any problems are going to be located. That's where our, any biasing information is going to be noted. That's where any contamination is going to be noted. You don't include that stuff in your report. 
So I feel like they felt that that was really an intentional act on his part to only discuss the very minimal information that we contain in our reports and nothing that might indicate a problem happened at any other stage of the testing. And so mm-hmm. um, it was really a highly problematic decision for him to make to, to stick cl- clearly to that and leave out some of that other information that was important. Yeah. I guess when it's intentional or when it's malicious, then that's different. But I, I'm wondering, like, are there any cases that you know of where, for example, it wasn't really malicious, but it was a mistake or maybe it was a process issue or maybe it was something that people weren't aware of. I mean, have you seen any of that? Oh, I think nine tenths of, of everything I do is that is oh, some right. mistake is some misunderstanding um, of what the status of the science is. Like when a scientist says, Oh, you know, this, this is clearly not, from transfer DNA. This is only from contact. We wouldn't expect to see a major profile like this from a transfer. And that's not scientifically supported. You know, we have data that shows that that does happen and that that statement is not correct. So, but I just think those analysts think they can say that they really believe that. And so I would say 95%, maybe more 99% of what I do are people that really truly believe that they're doing things correctly. And they're not trying to omit information to help one side or the other but I do think there are some times when analysts are more than happy just to answer the questions that they're being asked and not volunteer information and not detail the kinds of limitations of our science that would really be necessary for someone using this information to put it in, it, in its correct context and, and give it the proper weight. So I think it's more of that, that it's a subtle, you know, it's a subtle, what's the word I'm looking for? Like submission. They subtly submit, and that can that can also be very dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. And really have to resist that as scientists. In your in your career, what are some of the more important or memorable cases that you've worked on, and why? Oh, I worked on. Um, I had the privilege when I worked at DNA Labs International to work on a really old cold case, and there were some really really bright detectives, some really dogged detectives that were going back to these old cold cases. And looking for evidence that would be suitable for DNA now. Um, And one of the detectives on that case, his name was Wiley Black. And they went back and they recognized that there were hairs in the victim of this elderly woman who was beaten to death, they think maybe during a home invasion. And um, they tested the hairs and the hairs rendered DNA profiles. We were able to upload them and they hit. And so I was able to do some of that comparison work. And I went to court and sponsored that testimony um, you know, to say whose you know DNA could be on those hairs. There was a couple weird things that happened in that case. The prosecutor really wanted me to say that the hairs were from the defendant, and that's not really a link we make. You know, mm-hmm. we say the DNA profile that I obtained is consistent with the DNA profile from the defendant, and then you let the trier of fact usually put those two things together. You don't usually make that jump. The scientist doesn't do that. So I had to push back on him, and we fought a little bit. <laughs> And then um, after that trial was over, the defendant was convicted of the crime and he went to jail and the victim's granddaughter reached out to me on LinkedIn and she thanked me for my hard work in the case. And you never really get to, you know, understand what kind of an impact that has on the family. Mm-hmm. And actually you try really not to, you know, you don't want to be involved in that kind of thing. And, you know, it was a tough case because it was old, you know, those investigators had to find what there was to find and we had to be able to get information from it. And then the testimony, you know, I had to also be cross-examined by a defense attorney. Um, And then, you know, me and the prosecutor were not on excellent terms either. So it was pretty stressful. Um, But, you know, you know, you're just there to do, 
good science, unbiased science, and try to keep that in mind. And um, that was one that stands out to me. Yeah, it's tough when it when it's uh, and, and that's usually I would say the witness is often disassociated with the with the case. Like so, like I'll have people ask me, "Hey, what happened in that case?" But I'm like. I don't know. I, I'm busy. I'm doing other stuff now. So right, and, I, you, you, know. and you shouldn't, yeah, you shouldn't care. You shouldn't care about the outcome. And I, I tell people that all the time, like, you know, I don't know what all the other evidence was. I mean, maybe we convicted, maybe they convicted the wrong guy. Now who knows if the system got it right this time, but I know for, you know, all you got to do is focus on your little role and everything else that happens. It, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get involved at all? Or is there a lot more happening in the whole uh, genealogy area? So, yeah, I mean, I'm learning a lot about it. And obviously it's starting Florida is a really um, they were really one of the first people to have their Department of Law Enforcement people pull a unit together and start doing those investigations in the law enforcement agency. So there are a number of cases in Florida. I'm seeing that stuff. Um, I've had to learn a lot about it, you know, just how the the genealogy side of it, the searching Mm -hmm. and things and how how they're using the data. Um, but there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of, we, you know, at the, at the conference where I just was, it was called the Gordon research conference on um, forensic analysis of human DNA. And there's a lot of discussion about privacy and um, the kind of flaws and failures that it's exposed in our CODIS databasing systems. Like the FBI has all these requirements that um, we exhaust all of our CODIS searching options and everything before we move on to a really, you know, invasive genealogy search in a private database. But at the same time, there are all these gaps in the CODIS database and, you know, we're not getting offender profiles and genealogy investigations are revealing that we probably should have caught these people. Investigators should have caught these people from our normal, you know, ways and means before it got to this point. So, you know, there, there have been a lot of discussions about genealogy and what cases it should be applied to and which ones it shouldn't. So it's just been interesting. How is the, the genealogy, like in terms of actual uh, analysis, uh, different in terms of the kind of sample that you need versus a regular DNA case? So genealogy really requires a major profile, a really significant major profile um, or a single source profile. And you need enough DNA to be left over to do the genealogy stuff and additional STR stuff. You have to have an STR profile to compare um, in the end, because the genealogy stuff often is not going to be admissible. So there, there, there are different quantity requirements and quality requirements for that kind of testing. So not all samples are going to be suitable for it. Right. And I think that uses uh, SNPs, they call them. Is that what yeah. So that's different than like STR. Right. So we're looking at repeat units of code that vary by length. And they're looking at the single base repeat. So the, I mean, the single base code. So there's, it's sequencing. It's all sequencing. Okay. Um, whole genome sequencing or um, single nucleotide polymorphism chip se- sequencing. You've posted something a while ago, and I, I saved this one near the end, but, you know, it had to do with, um, I mean, you're fairly, I don't want to say critical, but you're, you're trying to be open about, you know, your, your, your area and saying, hey, we need improvements and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about before, like some of your colleagues in private, you know, don't, will tell you like, well, you know, I agree with you, but I don't want to post or I don't want to say anything about it, Right. So, yeah. um, so have you find that there are uh, a number of areas like that where people just, you know, in the background, they'll, they'll say one thing, but they just won't be vocal about it or, and also um, in private, like, do you get any 
criticism because of, you know, expo- like they feel like you're exposing the, the, the discipline, you know, uh, and opening it up to, to critique. Yeah. I mean, both of those things, you know, I think that there are systems in place, um, definitely, in, you know, the kind of changes that would need to take place to really address this on a widespread scale. There are systems in place that don't want to pursue that. That would take a lot. It's going to call a lot of things into question. Um, it would be really disruptive in order to make significant change in forensics. And some people are not ready for that. Um, and so, yeah, on both sides, there are people that are supportive. And I think more and more people are, are starting to think about making a career outside of the crime lab and really trying to take a hard look at forensics because they realize what kinds of things are going on in their crime labs that they're working in now. And they realize that there's probably a need for people like me. Um, and then certainly there are people that don't want to hear what I have to say. And I think part of this is that everybody wants to believe that they're doing good work, you know, and they're trying really hard. Like I said, I don't think the vast majority of things I see are intentional and it must be difficult. It's a tough pill to swallow when someone comes to you and says, you're doing it wrong. And the first reaction, knee jerk reaction is you're crazy. You're crazy. You know, (laughs) show me the proof. And it, you know, I'm, I get it. I wouldn't, I'm sure it would be hard for me too. And the idea that these people are experts and they have these high degrees and they've been working in this field for many years, you know, the the concept that they might not be doing something right is just something that they're not willing to consider. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of critical stuff that happens and it can be hard. And, but, you know, if you believe strongly enough in, in what you're doing and that it's for the good, for their own good, you know, you just got to get it out and have them let it be said. So what kind of things are you working on or are you working on any kind of research or involved in any other kinds of uh, groups or activities uh, that are looking to, you know, make changes, advance, do research? Yeah. So today I'm going to fly out. I'm going to North Carolina. I'm going to go to the research triangle and I'm going to meet with my colleagues from um, RTI and NIST. We're going to do some real hard work. It's our first real big in-person meeting for our human factors and forensic DNA working group. So you know, the, the experts are flying in from all over the country and we're going to be in a hotel for three days, just kind of working through the recommendations that we would make to mitigate human bias where we're, you know, where we're most susceptible in the DNA process. And so there's, you know, defense attorneys and um, cognitive scientists and lawyers, um, you know, academic lawyers and then bench scientists and, um, you know, people with varying different backgrounds. And we're going to go down there and, and kind of talk and hash that stuff out. So that should be very interesting. It's going to be really stimulating. And I get to meet these people that I've been working with for two and a half years for the first time. You know, we'll get to have a cocktail together. So I'm looking forward to that. And then, you know, I, I really want to do some additional work when it comes to testimony and making, you know, the community think long and hard about whether where there's enough oversight and if we're doing enough to prevent some of the problems that I'm seeing and whether or not we could do more and, you know, or whether or not we should do more. So um, I was talking to some international colleagues who, you know, follow all of the transcripts also, and they think that maybe I should write a book. And I'm also looking very closely at the activity level stuff. I'm going to take a pretty long, it's a year long course, 13 months long through the University of Luzanne. Um, and it's based solely on activity level propositions and using Bayesian networks. And I want to learn everything I can learn about that and, you know, really be prepared to try and figure out, you know, as we try to navigate that here in the United States, whether or not we can implement it. So that's oh, what I'm working on. 
Yeah, that's quite a that's quite, <laughs> quite a handful of stuff or whatever. I was just curious, was that uh, with Christophe Champot in uh, Lausanne or? Yeah, so he, I mean, they run that program, my contact there that does primarily, because Christophe is a fingerprint guy, you know, and so his compadre, you know, Partner, partner, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, his it's his wife, so it's Natalie Hicks Champagne. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, she's one of the primary professors who runs that course, and she's been, you know, she works with me on the on the NIST working group. I'm hopeful to see her this week, and so all the really great information I've got about what they are doing there, and you know, and everything I know, I really owe to 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 Natalie. Okay. And if, uh, if people want to get a hold of you and they just want to, whatever, they want to ask you questions or something like that, um, you're online, but what's, what's the best way to sort of, uh, get hold of you? Uh, my email is really the best and my personal email. My, you know, the one I respond to most often is just my name, tiffany.roy at gmail.com and, um, pretty responsive to that. And then, um, LinkedIn is great. People can find me on LinkedIn. That's pretty open and public. Excellent. Well, look, Tiffany, thank you so much. We're getting on in time here, but I want to say thank you so much for your input. It's, it was great. Uh, you're working on some cool stuff and uh, I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right.